0: Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. Today, we will be speaking with Ellen Cowan Meltzer, MD, MSC, lead author of an article published in Critical Care Medicine entitled Lip Reading and the Ventilated Patient. Dr. Meltzer is an Assistant Professor of Medicine and Public Health in the Division of Medical Ethics at Weill Cornell Medical College of Cornell University in New York, New York. She is also an Assistant Attending Physician at New York Presbyterian Hospital. Thank you for being here, Dr. Meltzer. Thank you for having me. Really enjoyed um, your article. Uh, I was hoping, though, we could start with a little bit about your background, how you got involved in uh, medical ethics consultations.
1: Sure, certainly. Well, I'm a fellowship trained general internist and in addition to seeing patients, I also work as a hospital medical ethicist at new York Presbyterian-Weill Cornell Medical Center. The ethics cases I see in the hospital are diverse and certainly not limited to the intensive care unit, but each case always offers a new occasion for reflection. The ICU specifically, I find, is a unique environment because medical ethicists have an opportunity to assist not only patients and their families, but also the medical staff who are faced with caring for these incredibly sick individuals. Uh, Our clinical ethics service completes over 250 consultations a year, many of which are for patients in the ICU and, as in the presented case, in the burn intensive care unit as well.
0: That's certainly a very busy ethics consultative service. Has it grown over time?
1: I think certainly it has grown over time. I I can't reflect back um, beyond the past year and my involvement here at Wild Cornell, but we are a big clinical, we are a busy clinical ethics service. I fortunately have an opportunity to help our colleagues over at the hospital quite frequently.
0: So, your, your manuscript uh, is a case report. It is a bit unusual to see a case report these days in, in many journals, and certainly in our journal, Critical Care Medicine. Perhaps you can tell us a little bit about the case that's described uh, and give us some of the ethical framework.
1: Sure, certainly. So, a 75 year old male was admitted to the burn unit with severe burn. He was awake, alert, and ventilator dependent via a tracheostomy, um, but he was able to mouth words. He was isolated. So he had no families or friends who could service his health care agent. And after nearly a year of treatment and multiple operations, his health began to fail. And he also was refusing any further surgical interventions. As medical ethicists, we were asked to help come to elucidate a plan for his care. So first we recommended a court-appointed surrogate be sought. However, this process tends to be prohibitively slow, and since the patient was gravely ill, this never was attempted. A next important initial step in his care was to determine whether or not he had decision-making capacity. The problem was that he had contractures, so he could only mouth words to communicate. He couldn't write or point to a communication board. The uh, burn ICU attending had some experience himself with a relative who had been intubated and influenced by his own experience he was the one who actually requested the services of a lip-reading interpreter to help facilitate discourse with this patient. So we had uh, two lip-reading interpreters who worked with this patient and also with psychiatry in order to determine that the patient did lack capacity and uh, that he also had poor insight into his current medical situation. As he got sicker, the team continued to rely on the lip-reading interpreters to communicate with him more in depth about his wishes and also, they learned about a, a burial plot that his family had where, where he ultimately wanted to be buried himself. So that's an outline of the case.
0: You know, I think sometimes in medicine and perhaps particularly in critical care with our residents and fellows. People get confused about what uh, defines medical decision-making capacity. I was hoping perhaps you could elucidate the concept of capacity.
1: Sure. So capacity is something that, that can wax and wane and, and can change over time. And capacity is a medical judgment. So it really has to do with whether or not a patient can understand the risks and benefit of a medical decision, the risks and benefits of a decision that they're making. So whether or not to agree to a certain treatment, to assent to a treatment or whether or not they, they're deciding to refuse a, uh, a medical treatment.
0: Yes, I agree. And sometimes I try and make an extreme example that patients, uh, even with uh, psychosis or delirium, can at times have medical decision-making capacity for a given decision at hand. Just wondering if you would agree with that.
1: That's a tough question. I think I think if a patient is psychotic, their, their judgment may be impaired. It may be difficult. Yeah. You know, it depends on how, you know, one of the things that making it a, a determination of capacity relies on a patient being able to engage with the psychiatrist or with a physician who's trying to assess capacity. So a patient does have to be able to you know, engage in a conversation and a discussion about risks and benefits and be able to articulate an understanding of those.
0: Certainly, as you point out, uh, psychiatric disease can certainly influence and alter medical decision-making uh, capacity. Out of curiosity, who, who generally determines uh, capacity at your institution?
1: Well, as As you've noted, you know, really any physician can determine whether or not a patient has capacity. We do tend to work closely with our psychiatrists and with a consult liaison service in assessing patients' capacity. And and sometimes I find this can be really helpful because patients may be on the verge of having capacity. They may be almost able to make an informed decision and psychiatry may be able to recommend some treatment options for helping to get the patient to, to have capacity, to be able to reinstate their capacity.
0: Yes, that's a great point. Back to the case, can you talk a little bit about medical translation in general and methods of translating uh, for patients uh, who really lack a voice?
1: So historically, nurses can really be credited for most of these advancements in in developing strategies to communicate with ventilated patients. Usually it's the nurse who's responsible for finding some solution to this problem of of communicating with a ventilated patient. So I like to think about modes of communication communication being categorized into those that require fine motor skills and those that use oral motor skills. So, for example, there's communication boards, writing, tracing letters on a caregiver's hand, blinking and gesturing. I would consider all of those to be modes of communication that require fine motor skills. However, mouthing, words obviously just utilizes oral motor skills, and this may actually be preferable for some patients because it's just easier and it's less physically taxing for the patient. When I use the term lip reading, that refers specifically to the act of recognizing speech using visual signals. And what's particularly interesting about this is that there are some deaf individuals who are not schooled in traditional American sign language. Rather, they communicate solely through mouthing words, gesturing, and lip reading. So our hospital already had a system established for communicating with this special population of deaf individuals, through the use of two interpreters. And this is what was applied to our patient in the burn unit. And the way that it works is that the first interpreter who actually performed the lip reading was a deaf individual who was trained as a lip reader. So she watched the patient mouth the words. And then she used American Sign Language to communicate what he said to a second interpreter. The second interpreter is a, was a sign language interpreter and she was not hearing impaired. So she was able to give verbal voice to what the patient had mouthed. And since the patient was not hearing impaired, he could listen to what the sign language interpreter said and then clarify anything that was not accurately interpreted. So it really was a unique situation in which these three individuals were working together as a team in order to foster communication.
0: So actually this reminds me of a case in our ICU of a patient uh Actually, with a fairly long term tracheostomy, whose significant other uh, was doing a lot of translation. And well, perhaps you can comment on this, but we were concerned about using a family member or significant other as a translator. But we had a similar type setup a lip reader and a signer, a sign reader, I guess. And the patient actually got quite frustrated about why we have these two people making signals at each other and um, translating uh, for me when my significant other can translate. In, in any case, you know, I, I, it does bring up the issue of uh, family members doing translation. Perhaps you can touch on that.
1: With a lip reading interpretation? Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I think that we often forget that, uh, you know, Jago calls for obligate interpretation services for patients that you shouldn't have to rely on a, a family member or a child to interpret for a patient. You know, for example, if the patient speaks um, doesn't speak English. So really, we could think about this type of interpretation similarly and, and in a sense requiring the same normative normative standards of, of an outside professional interpreter. So I think that raises a good point. You know, there can be, it can be problematic. However, studies have shown, studies of uh, lip reader, readers have shown that over time, uh, individuals, once they gain more familiarity with the patient the person mouthing words, they get better at lip reading. So that may be what you're seeing with family members. They're spending more time with this individual and are, are getting better at understanding what they're saying. There have been some studies with nurses showing that if a, a nurse is assigned to the same patient for an extended period of time, she will become more proficient reading that patient's
0: lips. Yeah, I agree. This gentleman had been uh, without a voice for quite some time and his significant other had been become quite proficient at reading his lips. And as you point out, we had some concerns about the bias that might be introduced. So the other group of patients I find particularly challenging are those that are orally intubated uh, and the frustration that comes with Trying to understand what uh, those folks are trying to tell us. Is there an opportunity, or has anyone uh, developed the skills to lip read in patients who are orally intubated?
1: That's an interesting question. So, working with with patients who are orally intubated does present a unique set of challenges, um, certainly distinct from those present when lip reading for patients with tracheostomies. So, why why is that? Well, it's it's more difficult to read lips with the endotracheal tube in place, not only just because of the tube, but also because there might be tape or device that's used to keep that tube in place. And all of that can impede the interpreter's view of the patient's mouth. You know, if you are attempting to lip read for these patients, it's advised to minimize um, any visual obstructions if possible and make sure the room is well lit. There's some literature to suggest that individuals with hearing loss are often more skilled lip reading and, and maybe better with these patients in terms of interpreting for them. but again as, as I just mentioned, perfecting this skill takes time and certainly is, is even more challenging when that endotracheal tube is in place. So there's limited literature, but some evidence to suggest that hearing impaired interpreters, Uh, may have superior skills.
0: Your patient spent quite a long time in the intensive care unit, staff members, and can become frustrated and uh, emotionally charged. I I wonder if you noticed uh, some of that in this particular case and how people responded to this individual. So
1: you're right. The patient was in the intensive care unit for an extended period of time, and and certainly the staff got to know him well and and really cared for him. Towards the end of his life, when they, when the team learned more about his personal life, you know, after nearly a year of, of conversation with the patient, the team really felt close to him. And when, uh, when they learned of his wishes to have a Catholic funeral mass, the, the burn unit was able to provide that for him. And members of the, the burn unit attended his, his Catholic funeral mass and actually served us as his pallbearers.
0: Yeah, it certainly sounds as though this patient had quite an effect on those team members. Well, it's been really wonderful to uh, have you on our podcast and have some time to speak with you. I should mention that you graduated from Jefferson Medical College where I practice and teach and even rotated on our uh, acute care surgery service. So it's really a, it's really great to catch up with you and uh, see how far you've come. And I wish you much success in the future. So thank you very much. Oh,
1: thank you so much for this wonderful opportunity certainly appreciate it. Michael S. Weinstein, MD, FACS, FCCP, serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Weinstein is associate professor of surgery at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He is director of the surgical ICU and executive medical co-director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Programs for Critical Care. His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the intensive care unit, medical ethics, diaphragmatic pacing, and spinal cord injury. The Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.